Hi, this is Josh Tyson with UX Magazine. Last week, I had the chance to talk with Dan Ward, the author of The Simplicity Cycle, a field guide to making things better without making them worse. Dan spent over two decades in the U.S. Air Force, researching, developing, testing, and fielding military equipment. He was able to deliver some pretty big projects under budget and ahead of schedule by balancing complexity and goodness. So uh, he's taken those, those learnings and he's packed them into this book. Uh, this book is extremely useful, for real. Peter Morville, our buddy, our uh, judge in the Design for Experience Awards, he says if I could ask my clients to read one book before we work together, it would be The Simplicity Cycle by Dan Ward. It's simply brilliant. Don Norman wrote the intro. He says, uh, for anyone wanting to embrace the mantle of simplicity, this book, The Simplicity Cycle, is essential. Making something simple is difficult. Simplicity is actually quite complex. So there you have it. Let's talk to Dan. All right. So, Dan, uh, are, you, uh, are you in Boston right now? I am, just outside of Boston. Very nice. Uh, what's, what's, uh, what's the weather like there right now? Oh, it's beautiful. It's supposed to be um, mid-80s and sunny today. See, that's interesting. Yeah. See, I'm in Denver where it's supposed to be 300 days of sunshine, but for like the past, I don't know, probably two months, it's been raining just about every day. And right now Ooh, it's gosh. kind of monsooning. Yeah. Yeah. My wife uh, is a hairstylist and she found out last night that her, her uh, salon flooded. So all Ooh, kinds of oh, drama. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, it's, oh, it's not no fun. Yeah. She's got a, a place where she can work uh, for the day, but, uh, yeah, I bring it up because it's interesting. I, I was just lamenting to a friend the other day about uh, how, you know, talking about weather can quickly start to feel very mundane. And it's that thing that everyone goes to right away. But again, sure. it's just because it's it's the one shared experience that everyone has. And uh, especially regionally, you know, it's it's uh, something everyone experiences. You can't escape it. And I like that you right. uh, you reference weather as, as an example of something uh, that's very complex, so complex that it can't really be totally unpacked. Uh, and I thought that was a really, uh, it was an, one of the great examples in the book. I, 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 I'm not finished with the book yet, but uh, I, I'm blown away by all the really good examples you use to, to kind of describe these these terms uh, like complexity and goodness. So, Yeah, hey, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I think one of the things with complexity is that it does make uh, prediction very, very difficult. As, as complexity increases, predictability goes way down. Absolutely. Yeah, and with weather... Uh, I, I'm still not convinced that uh, they, yeah, like you mentioned, they can't predict, they can't predict the weather 20 minutes from now, let alone two weeks out. So right. they, they do a pretty good job of explaining why something happened after the fact, but it's just one of those <laughs> things. <laughs> right, right. I'm not sure we'll ever be able to, to tame or understand it. So uh, yeah, weather. What about, um, I, I'd like to talk to you just a little bit about your experience in the military, uh, because especially designing uh, products and solutions in that, uh, in that setting, I wonder uh, how, how different it is, especially uh, I'm thinking like with regards to, to user testing and things like that. I mean, there's, there's such uh, regimented ways of doing things. I wonder if that is, it was kind of a boon or uh, if it was a hindrance. Uh, both. Yeah. There was, there are pluses and minuses with that type of approach. And yeah, the, the, uh, the book itself has its roots in my experience as a military engineer and, and military uh, technology officer. Uh, in large part, the, a lot of it came out of just frustration when I was a, a junior officer and kept encountering people who treated complexity as an inevitable uh, sign of sophistication and as an unavoidable attribute of military technologies. And what I found was that complexity was not always a sign of sophistication and complexity was not always inevitable. In fact, we had options to have 
technologies, processes, organizations that were simpler and performed better. And there's a lot of data that shows simpler systems tend to outperform the more complex systems. Uh, but yeah, then it gets into the question of testing. That's one of the reasons. It's it's easier and faster to test a simple system and really really rigorously test it. You know, find out all the different um, functional modes, failure modes, ways it can break, ways it can be used in different uh, you know for different applications. Uh, it's easier to do that, and you can do it much faster and much cheaper when you have a simple technology. Um, and that complexity tends to put up barriers to testing, uh, excessive complexity and tends to put up barriers to actually fielding the thing. You know, it takes so much time to, to test it by the time you're finally done. Um, the technology is either operationally irrelevant or technologically obsolete or both. Yeah, well, and, and when you're dealing with, uh, like it mentions here in your bio, that you had a, an $84 million airborne radar program. So the stakes are pretty high. Uh, <laughs> that's a lot yeah, of money. Interestingly, it is, it is. It, and I keep having to remind myself that $84 million is indeed a lot of money. That was one of the smallest projects in my, uh, in my division's portfolio. So, you know, I was very much the, the, the small guy on campus. Um, but nevertheless, $84 million is a lot of money. And I was very happy to deliver that $8 million under budget. Yeah. And when you look at the, uh, the other projects within that portfolio, they were all much, much larger. And they, despite having more money, tended to overspend, tended to take longer than anyone anticipated or than promised and cost more than they promised. And they ended up doing less than they promised. And, and my little project um, was ahead of schedule under budget and did about twice as much as, as anybody had anticipated. Yeah, which is amazing. Uh, I mean, in, in government, coming in early and under budget is kind of a rare thing. And then I, I think also in, in, our, in our industry, in, in, a, in experience design and product and service design, it's it's another it's like just an area where it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to hit your your goals consistently. Um, it is, yeah. It's, it's both rare and difficult. I think it gets easier if we start off with a small schedule. I'm sorry, a small budget and a short schedule uh, to begin with. A, a small team and a deep commitment to simplicity as an engineering discipline, as a design discipline, not just as a as a bumper sticker. Mm-hmm. Well, and I like too that the book. You know, it's called the Simplicity Cycle. So when you pick it up, you think it's it's maybe just going to be about how to make things really simple, uh, which in a sense explores that. But I think what drew me in right away is that, uh, and, and like you mentioned with complexity, right? Like people just kind of assume maybe that uh, complexity is inevitable. And I think in, in design, it's, it's, uh, there's kind of an overemphasis on simplicity. People assume that if something's simple, it's good. So I like that what you're doing is showing that there's actually, it's, it's really about balancing those two things and, and kind of leveraging them against goodness, which uh, is, is a really interesting way of kind of describing, yeah, usability in a sense. Yeah, the the, uh, the most important line in the book, and I actually went back and counted, I think I repeat this line five times in, in a relatively short book, um, but I think it bears repeating, and the line is, simplicity is not the point. Uh, you know, I think a lot of uh, simplicity advocates and simplicity gurus sort of go wrong when they overvalue or overemphasize simplicity. Uh, I think some people just love simplicity a little too much. But complexity actually does have value. Complexity can be important and useful. And so really, I think what I try to do in the book is put some of our assumptions under the microscope and compare them with actual data, compare them with actual practice and say, you know, yes, sometimes the way to improve a design is to make it more complicated. Sometimes the way to improve a design is to make it simpler. And the trick is to understand which of those two situations you're in and to understand how to use different tools depending on your situation, depending on the phase of the project. Yeah, and it's interesting too, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, 
just just that um, for a, a you know a, a new and kind of uh, exciting industry, uh, there, there's a lot of dogmatic thinking uh, in design. Sometimes I think people latch onto one idea and are maybe a little afraid to let go of it. Uh, you know, there's pro- people swear by certain processes or or uh, you know swear by always maintaining certain goals when uh, in fact it, you you kind of really need to be flexible and and uh, and open. And then seeing things in kind of a balanced way. Yeah, that's a great word, dogma. Uh, I think dogma tends to be simple, and that there's something good about that. There's a danger associated with that. Nuance tends to be more complex, and so I think that's one of these areas where the complexity of nuance in the things we design and, and the way we approach our design, uh, I think, is is important. Um, but yes, having dogma, having you know a, a very narrow perspective on on how to do things. Again, that will get you so far. That will get you to a certain point, but the, it becomes problematic when we overdo it. When we overdo the, the simplicity of our dogma, and we use that as an alternative to actually thinking and to actually, you know, responding to uh, changing and emerging situations, emerging requirements, and we we sort of abandon all nuance. And so, really, what you want is is a like I said, a blend of understanding when dogma is useful, understanding when nuance is useful and sort of mastering both of those tool sets. Definitely. And, and I like, too, that you, you focus uh, early on in the book on context and, and the importance of, of looking at what you're doing in context. And I think uh, certainly that's always been a cons- uh, factor with uh, designing digital solutions and products. But I think now we're moving into a, a time when it's going to be paramount in a sense because you, you have so many products that are able to function on or, or, or use location data and, and get hyper contextual. So I think keeping that in mind too, probably. Yeah, I think you know, one of the challenges with, with writing a book like this, where you know you're writing about issues of simplicity and complexity, it's a really broad topic and can be applied in a lot of different situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you kind of need to to emphasize the idea that hey, context matters. Context will affect um, how your project moves through different design phases. It will affect what types of tools are most relevant and most helpful and most useful. Um, and certainly within any given context, and just user interface for mobile, um, that in and of itself, sometimes you're dealing with uh, you know, highly skilled users, sometimes you're dealing with very basic users, you get casual users, you get the dedicated users, and each one of these will have a, a different context and a different needs. So again, understanding the, the phases that you're in, the context that you're in, and then being able to pick different tools to use in these different contexts that's really where the book comes in. I, I spend a fair amount of time introducing some of these tools and practices and in large part, the, basically just saying, hey, these different tools exist to make us increase awareness of them. Uh, and then to say, okay, well, how do we get good at using these tools? And mastery takes time. It takes practice and experience, uh, but we'll never get to that point until we're, you know, have that initial awareness that, that these things are possible. Absolutely. And uh, I like too, that it's, it's really applicable to to, to all sorts of different industries, not just uh, design or digital design. Uh, it, it's, it's something that you could use, rel- I mean, basically just about anywhere that you have, have, that you're looking to create a solution and there's some degree of complexity. Yeah, I was doing a, a seminar one time and to a large group of, of junior military officers and um, most of my audiences, most of my, my clients tend to be aerospace, technology, mobile, you know, cyber type, uh, cybersecurity, cyber... Uh, power and IT type uh, type people, but the most enthusiastic person in the audience that day, and I write about her in my book, was a dentist. 
Uh, and I never imagined applying the simplicity cycle to dentistry. Hmm. But she came up afterwards and was very enthusiastic and saying, oh, you know, you completely explained and, and described some of the challenges we're dealing with in the dental clinic, uh, actually on the, the base dental clinic, you know, with, with our processes, with our tools and, and where we're going wrong and where we're doing well. And a lot of this had to do with our decisions we're making about complexity. And so we had probably a 10 minute discussion about how this uh, stuff applies to the practice of a dental office, which again, was, was a pleasant surprise to me, but you're right. It sort of gets to the idea that this general tool, which was designed, you know, really initially with engineers in mind, can be applied to all number of things. Uh, dentistry, writing for sure. Um, this very much describes my writing process as well. Very cool. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think that's one of the most exciting things to me about experience design is, uh, and, and I, I feel like we are kind of in a, an emerging experience economy, and you can see that across industries, you know, uh, customer experience and, and UX, like CX and UX merging, you know, whatever you want to call these things or however you want to describe it, it seems like everyone's putting a higher premium on creating some sort of experience, um, which is exciting and it's good for consumers, obviously, but, but it's also cool because, uh, you know, designing experiences is, is the linchpin is that you're solving problems. And, and it just goes to show that there are just a vast number of problems out there that are in, in every, every situation you could find yourself in, um, be it on your phone or walking into a pet store or going to the dentist or going to the doctor or, I mean, just about anything you can apply experience design to in some, in some form. Yeah. And, and when we're designing things, I think one of the top risks is user acceptance or, or lack of user acceptance. And a lot of times users will walk away, especially when they first get exposed to something, they'll walk away from a design that is um, too complicated. Uh, they will also walk away from a design that is ambiguously simple. Mm -hmm. If we make something so simple that you just, you know, there's only one button here. I can't tell what's going to happen if I push this button. You know, so simplicity can create a barrier to user acceptance as well. Uh, but I think the answer isn't to find some sort of magical sweet spot in the middle. Mm -hmm. It's to understand when we want to go, you know, really simple or even radically simple. And when we want to go more complex and, and even, you know, heavily complex. Uh, again, a lot of that comes down to, like we mentioned before, the context and the needs and the interests of the different users. Yeah, I mean, you can't go too simple, right? The, the Yo app, we haven't heard about that in a while. So, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, I think Google does a great job of this. We've all had hours and hours of Google training where you go through the classes and learn how to use Google. Uh, no, of course not. You just, you go to Google and you can immediately tell how to use it. It's a very simple interface. It's just a box. You, you type in what you're looking for. Um, but Google also has a significant, like a huge number of uh, sort of power user capabilities and power user functions, different ways yeah. you can do that basic search, but also Google Books, Google Scholar. You know, all, all these different things that are, are there. They're not more than a, a click or two away, uh, but they're not right up in your face when you first start using Google. Absolutely. So they do, I think, a pretty nice job of, of hitting that, more than balance, hitting that rhythm of increasing complexity and decreasing complexity. Yeah, and they do a really good job of kind of rewarding curiosity because if you, if you dig into any of their tools, it, it, it sort of becomes like an onion, like you're peeling back layers and you're discovering functionalities that uh, maybe maybe you didn't even know you need it or know that would be useful to you, but they're, they're there. And, uh, that's a great way to describe it. They reward curiosity without demanding curiosity. You know, they, if you have it, you can spend forever, you know, digging into additional layers, but if you don't have it, if you're not interested in expressing your curiosity there, you're not forced to, uh, you can sort of just use the very basic version. Absolutely. Uh, I think one other thing that, that I always come back to when I'm thinking about experience design, uh, is that, 
uh, it's something I really uh, appreciate about it is that people from all walks of life or from all different industries and professions are finding ways to kind of segue into this industry and building uh, roles for themselves, finding niches. Um, and, and I think that's really cool. I mean, it's, it's, it, it brings us a broader understanding of experience, but uh, I guess for you, I'm curious, like, do, do you uh, see uh, your engineering background and your military background? Like how, how, how do they kind of play into uh, to the, the, the niche you've carved out for yourself in this industry? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think certainly as an engineer and, and as a military engineer in particular, I come to uh, problem solving and, and decision making with a particular set of, of orientations and, and assumptions. And in the process of, of writing this book, I really tried to um, you know, question some of those assumptions and, and just to really dig in and say, you know, which of these are productive and, and correct and when. So uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's it's brilliant and, and fantastic that there is such a diversity of experience, diversity of perspective in this uh, UX discipline. And uh, I think that just that, that speaks well to the problem set that's been carved out by, by the UX community, that, that they really um, lowered the barriers to participate, lower the barriers to contribute. Um, and I think that uh, I would love to see more disciplines uh, in that situation. Mm, it would be nice. Uh, so, so did you come to engineering by way of the military, or did you did your interest in engineering uh, begin much earlier in, in your life? Um, pretty early on, I was always good at math and science growing up, and it's kind of crazy to think. But when I was sixteen and, and in high school, I knew I wanted to be an electrical engineer. I knew I wanted to join the Air Force, and um, you know, I knew I wanted to do stuff related to technology development. Um, why and how I knew these things, I, I don't know. Looking back, it, it's sort of <laughs> surprising <laughs> to me, but. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's been a long time, uh, long time thing. Do you come from a military family? Uh, I do. I'm actually fourth generation military. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force for about 26 years. Uh, both my grandfather served in the Navy in World War II, and my great grandfather and his wife, my great grandmother, uh, were both in the Navy in World War One. So, um, yeah, I'm uh, a little bit fourth generation military, kind of the the business, the, the family business, I suppose. Yeah, well, that's cool, and that and that probably well that that explains perhaps the the decision to join the air force, but yeah, the, uh, the electrical engineering was your, were your parents, did they have specialized roles in the military? Um, so my dad is a, um, a clinical social worker and psychologist. So he basically, he mostly worked at the base hospital, hmm. um, doing mental health, uh, type work. So yeah, so good for me to go into technology was, was a, a departure from, from his background. Interesting. Yeah. But actually my great grandfather was an electrician, uh, working on the Leviathan, the, uh, uh, large cargo ship that went back and forth across the Atlantic several times in World War One. Yeah, I mean, and the military is a great place. If you, if you know, I feel like if you know what you really know, what you want to do, uh, the military can provide so many opportunities to uh, to learn and to practice and to develop your skills uh, in, in a very focused, disciplined environment. Which sure, sure, and for the people who don't know what they want to do, the the military oftentimes helps you figure that out. It gets you try a couple of different things and you know see what you like and. Uh, uh, yeah, so sometimes people come in not knowing at all what they're going to do and, and end up finding something they love. Yeah, very true. My uh, my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, he uh, he joined the military, I think, he might have, yeah, he went in right at 18, and he, he always uh, was a really good shooter. He would go hunting a lot, and he's kind of a legend in, on her side of the family. Ah. He's a very mysterious figure, but he's been in, I think he's in his late 40s now, um, and every time he comes up for retirement, he kind of thinks about it and then just goes right back in. It seems like uh, 
it, it's kind of a difficult uh, environment to leave in a sense because you have uh, just such a unique camaraderie and it, it's it's its own like compact really you know well it's like a highly functioning environment like what you know so so was it it is and, and you build very tight relationships with the people you work with you know especially when if you're deploying a lot and I did have a chance to spend six months in Afghanistan and um, that was definitely a, a, a bonding experience. Um, my plan was to get out right around the 20-year point, and that project you mentioned earlier, the radar project, that was uh, $8 million under budget. I actually delayed my retirement by about six months just so I could see that uh, project through to completion. Um, but I also got a, a two-book deal with HarperCollins, so that made uh, the decision to, to get out and go do this uh, writing and speaking and, and consulting work. Uh, a fairly easy decision. Sweetens the deal a bit, yeah. <laughs> it did, it did. You know, it really gave me something to move to rather than anything I was moving away from. And do you feel like the opportunity to, to travel and see different parts of the world really kind of informed your uh, your your skill set and your perspective and, and, and maybe honed, you know, what you thought you might want to do with your with your engineering skills as you, yeah, you know, move forward? Of, absolutely. Well, one of the interesting things about the military is it's very much a young person's game. And as a, a military engineer, I was inevitably 10 years or so younger than my, my peers and my colleagues from, from industry, from you know, Boeing and Lockheed Martin and, and all the different contractors that, that do work with us. So I've had a chance to uh, you know, go into the Cheyenne Mountain military complex and install computer equipment there. I've been to Japan and Korea, uh, England, Afghanistan. And so just a chance to see things that I, very few other people get to see. I've been at the basement of the Pentagon at, at midnight uh, pulling an overnight shift on the uh, crisis action team as we were uh, coordinating a rescue effort for some pilots who had gone down in Libya, um, which, again, not something most engineers get to go do. Right. Um, and, it, again, it's that diversity of experience that really sort of helped uh, um, increase my, uh, you know, widen my aperture, widen my exposure to uh, different problem-solving uh, approaches, problem-solving styles, different communication styles. And again, to see what worked and what didn't work, and then sort of put it all together in this uh, in this series of books. So, was it a challenge at all for you to transition uh, into life and work in the private sector? Or it sounds like maybe you, you had a kind of a nice off ramp. Um, you know, it's been a really good transition. Um, one of the nice things about military service is, from the first day you put on a uniform, you know that you will at some point have to take it off. This this isn't for most of us a job that we get to do for our entire working life. So, I'd been I'd had uh, military retirement, and I use that word loosely. You know, it's more of a transition than an actual retirement. But but making that transition, uh, I'd had that on my radar screen for a good ten years, and I always knew. I, even when I was sixteen, I, I wanted to do a military job that I could then turn into a civilian job. You know, whether it was after four years or twenty or, or more. So yeah, it's something I'd been um, mindful of and, and paying attention to and working on for a while. Uh, the, the book, the timing of the book deal just uh, was was lucky, but I guess luck is you know preparation and opportunity coming together. So, uh, but yeah, the, the timing just worked out really well, and then the first book came out uh, shortly before I retired. The second book came out shortly after, so it was uh, sort of sandwiched in there. And the the military does a really nice job of of helping people through that transition process. There was a lot of training. It's about a year long process where you go to different classes and. You get different um, assistance, everything from, from finance to um, interviewing, and, and they even do a class on, on what to wear because, you know, you spend 20 years wearing a uniform. Um, the question of, you know, well, how do I buy a suit? What, <laughs> what, what kind of tie should I wear? Uh, they actually do uh, offer a class in that. 
yeah, I mean, that's 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 one of the funny little <laughs> considerations that that you might not think of on the outside. That yeah, you do have to think about what am I going to wear when I'm not wearing right my dress blues anymore. Right, right. But of course, now I'm uh, working from home as a writer. I get to sit around in my jeans and a t-shirt uh, in my basement home office, and um, that's pretty nice too. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny how uh, how how that shift is. Like, I, I worked in an office for a long time, and I'm actually sitting in my basement right now in a, in a t-shirt and jeans, essentially. <laughs> so yeah, it's funny how you can go from yeah, like uh, it, it's interesting because I feel like when you sometimes when you're when you're uh, dressed and you feel like you're really prepared and looking crisp, it it can really have a positive impact on on your output. Uh, so you, oh, you sure. kind of have to keep that in mind as you're laying about in sweatpants with your laptop. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, so I noticed, too, you have an article uh, drawing lessons, uh, and these are acquisition lessons, but from, from Star Wars, uh, which, which I, I found pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, we, there's, there's a book, uh, the spacing on the name right now, um, maybe it's called, I think it was called Make It So. And, ah, okay. and it's a, it's from Rosenfeld Media, but it's a whole book on on user interface uh, lessons or or uh, well not so much lessons, but just, it just looks at basically every science fiction movie and TV show ever made right. essentially, and really okay. it picks apart like all the interface design elements and all the you know like it it looks at them as if they're real products, and it's really kind of fascinating. Um, so I guess my question there is, uh, you know, you spend a lot of time working with very tangible uh, and it sounds like extremely technologically advanced projects. Uh, do you think there's a lot of value in kind of science fiction and, and looking outside of, of what's been done and, and, and thinking very creatively? Well, absolutely. I'm a huge sci-fi fan and, and have been for forever. And the military actually has taken a lot of lessons from, uh, from science fiction, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, that that uh, Star Wars article that you mentioned was, uh, I started off before I wrote books, I, started, I wrote um, probably 80 or so different magazine articles um, for a variety of outlets, and that one is hands down the most popular and, and <laughs> most successful of my articles. The, the basic premise of that one was build droids, not Death Stars. And the idea is that these small, inexpensive, simple technologies tend to outperform the big, you know, huge, expensive, complex systems like Death Stars. Uh, and it really was inspired by when we watched the movies, the, the Star Wars movies with my kids, one of my daughters said, you know, they, should, they shouldn't build those Death Stars anymore. They keep getting blown up. Yeah. And, you know, I about fell out of my chair because <laughs> it's so true, you know, that these we spent so much time and money building these big, complicated systems. And they just didn't bring that much to the fight because they were they were fragile. And if you lose one, you know, that's the only one you had. And, and even the Empire, with all their vast resources, couldn't build more than one Death Star at a time. Um Whereas droids, you know, R2-D2 just kept saving the day over and over again. And if you go back and you watch the films carefully, you see R2-D2 is just the hero of the whole thing. He just keeps, you know, rescuing people and passing the information. And he has so many broad capabilities, far beyond what you would expect from a very simple droid. So, yeah, I took the the movies and sort of drew some military technology lessons and innovation lessons in general from them. I always felt a little bit bad that that article was so... Um, well-received and, and so popular and having commented on in so many different forums. I'm really more of a Trekkie than a Star Wars guy, but, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, uh, I'm, I'm really happy with how that, uh, how that piece came out. Yeah. Well, I'd imagine if you wrote an article uh, centered around Star Trek, it would have a, a similar boost. Uh, just seems right, to, right. So to do really well. In, 
In my first book, uh, Fire, which is uh, the subtitle is How Fast, Inexpensive, Restrained, and Elegant Methods Ignite Innovation. Uh, in that one, I have a chapter where I go into some of the Star Trek um, technologies, and, and I talk about the uh, my version of the Prime Directive. Um, in, uh, in Star Trek, the Prime Directive is, you know, don't interfere unnecessarily with the development of alien civilizations. Um, oh, that's a lot right. of it has to do with, you know, don't introduce a hyperdrive to a civilization that's not ready for the hyperdrive. Yeah, I and, think it's at the beginning of uh, the, like, well, the newer Star Trek sequel, I think, isn't that what happens at the beginning? They they break that yes, directive to, to save absolutely. our civilization. And, and that's what's interesting is that the, the prime directive gets broken uh, almost more often than it gets followed. Um, but, uh, you know, with sometimes with good results, sometimes with bad results. So it's really more of a guideline than a, a hard and fast rule. But the technology version of that that I write about in my first book is uh, don't introduce unnecessarily complex or unnecessarily advanced technologies into your designs, um, again, for the same reasons. And sometimes we should introduce advanced technologies into our designs. But again, it's understanding that as a general rule, our designs are better off when we leave out some of that bleeding edge tech, because uh, a lot of times that just ends up being you know, gold-plated or, or over-engineered um, solutions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right too. Like Star, Star Wars tends to, is kind of the more like uh, philosophical, well, and, and focuses more on the fantasy elements of, of uh, sci-fi sometimes, whereas Star Trek really seems to be more about uh, like the complexity of things uh, in a sense. Sure. And, yeah, I, and the complexity in the technologies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in that book, they actually mentioned that uh, like that first Motorola flip phone essentially mm -hmm. drew inspiration directly from the, the, what is it? The telecom that they use in the original? Uh, the tricorder. Yes. Yeah, yes. The, the tricorders. Sure. Yeah, and I think there's actually even uh, documentation showing that yes, that is indeed where Motorola <laughs> took inspiration. So it's, it's right. And, and Captain Picard in the Next Generation series, he had a tablet computer that he used all the time, way before anybody had actually invented a tablet computer. So yeah, um, yeah, they really are uh, great examples of you know what technology and specifically what the user interface could look like. Man, you would love this book, Make It So, because it's... Uh, I will have to check it out, it, for sure. It goes very granular on exactly the kind of stuff that we're talking about here. It's, it's pretty <laughs> nice. mind-blowing how, how, how much stuff they're able to dig up and, and how much of it ends up being prescient like that, where it is like, oh, wow, he was using a tablet computer back on a show that was made in the 90s. Like, how incredible is that? Right, right. Uh, yeah, so... I'm losing my train of thought for a second here. <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> so one of the other great sci-fi movies that gets pointed to a lot in terms of user interface, of course, is um, uh, Minority Report. Oh, absolutely. Tom Cruise had those great gloves. And the thing that drives me nuts about that movie, though, is he puts on these gloves and he has this amazing physical interface with the screen. But then he goes to pass a file to the guy on the other side of the room. And what does he do? He reaches out and he, he picks up a small crystal, a little sheet of crystal physically removes it from the thing and hands it to the guy. And like, well, they, they, they didn't invent a, a network. You know, you, you don't have a wireless link. Um, you have to physically hand a, a, a device, a, a memory stick, essentially. And, uh, you know, for all the great things they did with that user interface, I thought that the networking piece of that technology uh, really was a missed opportunity. Yeah, and I mean, I think that, you know, that, that uh, movie gets referenced very frequently, especially I think by interface designers and, and yeah, but what it points to is, is exactly what you're describing that sometimes it's easy to get caught up on kind of like the bling aspects of, or like the coolness factor of, of something and not necessarily focus enough on 
what's going on behind the scenes or, or you know, like how, how it would really function in a sense and how it could be right. truly useful, truly good, how it could have goodness. Right. Absolutely. And that wireless connection is, is the least sexy part of the, uh, of the whole architecture, but it also could be one of the most important parts because, boy, if you drop that little crystal thing, it looks very fragile. It looks like it could get lost. It could, it could break. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that would, it would lose some points on, on my goodness scale. Yeah, all kinds um, of problems with that, that crystal, for sure. Uh, yeah, and I think, yeah, it's inter- another interesting thing about uh, experience design is just that how all the crucial elements are, are kind of behind the scenes uh, and, and how so, so many aspects of the work are, are intangible and very hard to describe to people who don't sit in and actually do the work. So I, I feel like, you know, that's, that's an eternal struggle that, that I think is getting better because more and more people outside the industry are, are, are interested in at least the, the dividends, like the, the gains that can be made from focusing on experiences or on designing experiences. So now I think there's more of an interest in, in knowing, you know, how, how it's done. But for the longest time, that was the big struggle, right? Like how, you know, experienced designers tend to sometimes have a chip on their shoulder about it too. Like, like sure, my stakeholders sure. don't get this. They don't understand. They're just going to wreck it, that kind of thing. So, um, right. so I feel like, yeah, you know, yeah. your book in a sense too, uh, highlights ways to explain these things in broader terms. Absolutely. And, and that challenge uh, of, of communicating with stakeholders is really the, one of the main reasons I, I even wrote the book. Um, a lot of times we have a hard time talking about issues of simplicity and complexity uh, in part because those words have a lot of, of baggage. You know, when we say something is simple, some people mean easy, and somebody else says simple, and they mean not complicated. And there's a big difference between something being not complicated and something being easy. Um, and, you know, it kind of kills me. Some people will say, oh, Dan, I loved your book. It was so simplistic. <laughs> and I'm like, well, simplistic to me has a negative connotation. That's <laughs> that, that simple but not very good. You know, it's like being childish instead of being childlike. Absolutely. Um, a big difference there. So what I try to do with, with the simplicity cycle is give leaders and, and teams a, an intuitive uh, visual vocabulary to help us have these conversations, to help make these talks more productive and effective. And it really comes down to drawing a little X, Y axis on a, on a whiteboard on the back of a napkin uh, and kind of saying, look, we are here with our design and we want to go there. And to get from point A to point B, here are some of the design behaviors. Here are some of the, the tools and techniques we could use whether we're, we're increasing complexity or decreasing complexity. Some of these different tools we could use to improve the, the goodness, the quality, the effectiveness, the fitness for use um, of, of the thing. And by turning it into a visual vocabulary and sort of a, a physical vocabulary, you know, where you're, you're drawing a line and say, go from here to there, um, which may be hard to describe on a, on a podcast or on an on a audio recording. Um, but by doing that, we sort of take that that word simple uh, off the table. We take the word complex off the table um, and we don't have to get wrapped around the axle with some of the, um, like, you know, some of the baggage that goes along with some of those words. Well, yeah, I'll be sure to post a, a picture of the, the simplicity cycle figure because ah, yeah, it's, it's very useful. And, it, and I think for that reason, yeah, that you just mentioned, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a very physical way to show people like, look, as we continue to add features, this is, this is what's happening to the pitch of this line. We are, right. We're going to move away from goodness unless we, you know, balance it out in some way. So, Absolutely. So when I'm working with my teams or working with my clients now, um, a lot of times I will on the whiteboard, you know, put that X, Y axis up there with uh, complexity on the, 
up and down axis and, and goodness on the right and left axis and say, okay, you know, where do we think we are? What have we done lately to the design and how did that move us? And, and really your, your vector matters more than your position. So it's not so much a question of where are, am I on this chart, but, but where have I come from and where am I going to? Uh, that will really help uh, answer the question of, you know, what do we need to do next? Well, yeah, it seems clear too, in a sense that, that uh, you know, the, the more successful design processes are the ones that, that can, can bring in stakeholders in a, in a non-confrontational way and, and make them feel like they're actually part of the process instead of, uh, you know, an agent of, of chaos in a sense. Right, right. And, and that's one of the nice things about this one too is, you know, with this diagram, you don't need to have an engineering degree to understand, um, hey, did the thing get more complicated or did it get less complicated? Anybody can look at that and, and make that uh, conclusion. Hey, is it better now or is it worse now? Um, really, that's something that the, the users, the customers should be in the driver's seat for making that assessment. Um, but, you know, you can kind of talk about, well, what do we mean by better? What do we mean by worse? Um, and that's where sort of the, the discussion really happens. And so the idea is to use this to foster some of these important discussions that can be so hard to have uh, if we don't have a, a helpful, uh, you know, useful vocabulary for, for doing it. Yeah. And you know, another thing, too, that, that strikes me is, uh, you know, I, we hear a lot about unicorns, the, the mythical unicorn, you know, being the designer who can also who also understands coding or can code. Uh, and while sure. there's certainly incredible value to, to knowing how to engineer things in that way, uh, I wonder if, if uh, you know, the, the more uh, progressive type of unicorn might be the designer who really knows how to communicate uh, design value to stakeholders. Uh, I feel like that is a skill set that's often missing. You know, it's it's easy to kind of get, and, and rightly so, it's easy to get lost in design work because it's it's creative, it's engaging, it's enthralling. It's you see results right away. I mean, there's all sorts of great things about it that that you know lure you in in that way. But I think that, that to have the ability to really explain it to your stakeholders in terms of like of how it's going to affect the goodness of a product. Uh, I think is, is valuable. So I wonder if, if, uh, if that was something that you in some sense were thinking about as well. Yeah. I think a, a designer who can communicate and, and even better, a designer who can listen and, and not just listen autobiographically or, or listen in, in a waiting mode, but genuinely listen deeply. Uh, boy, those are huge skills. And um, I remember right around the time about 10 years ago when, when the basic concept the the, the bedrock concept of the simplicity cycle was tar- starting to take shape in my head I remember thinking, I could have the best ideas in the world, but if I can't express them, if I can't communicate them in ways that are um, and understanding and engaging to the people around me, then it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Then my idea is essentially worthless. So I really, early on, said I need to develop and, and um, foster an ability to communicate well, communicate clearly, communicate in a way that's memorable and engaging and that's why I started, you know, writing stories about um, Star Trek and Star Wars. Uh, I did a number of, of comics and cartoons and just trying to use, you know, visual approaches to communicate some of these ideas. So, yeah, I mean, the simplicity cycle, if it's anything, it's it's a, a communication tool. It's a way to make it easier for us to talk about issues of design and complexity and simplicity with people who maybe don't have the same level of technical expertise as, as, uh, as the designer or the engineer might have. Well, yeah, and I mean, the good news for designers too is is if they want to develop these skills or sharpen these skills. I mean, a, a lot of a lot of it is a lot of what's necessary is already in their in their toolkit. I mean, empathy. These are 
especially empathy. It's something that every designer focuses on. And some of the more successful articles we've had in the magazine have kind of been about that. Like, how do you use your design skill sets, uh, you know, inside to, to affect change within your organization or within your group, within your team? Like, how to apply those same skill sets uh, to, to bring everyone closer to the, I guess, the solution that you really need to be working on. Yeah, empathy is so critical to uh, to communicating. I think empathy tends to correlate well with with listening, mm-hmm. um, and empathy as a label, as a as a topic, is something that I'm hearing a lot about these days. And it's a relatively uh, new addition to to my I won't say to my vocabulary, but to my awareness. But looking back, I can see it's something that you know, without having a word for it, it's something that I really focused on uh, a lot. I always said, hey, if I'm going to write an article, I want to write an article that's worth reading. I want to write something that's interesting and worthwhile and sort of peeling the onion back a little bit. I, in retrospect, I see, ah, that's, that's having empathy for the reader and not wanting to bore them, not wanting to just restate the obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I love that, that the concept of empathy is getting more, uh, more emphasis these days. Yeah, it is. And it's, uh, it's interesting too, because I think it has uh, some of the same problems as something like simplicity where, you know, Simplicity seems easy to grasp on the surface. And even though empathy can be complex, the notion, you know, you can wrap your head around it. You can feel like you're, you're being empathetic. But it's, again, one of those things that requires, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of work, a lot of research, a lot of understanding to truly arrive at an empathetic place. Uh, I feel like emotion is another thing uh, that kind of falls under that umbrella. We, we just published an article this week about uh, emotion and about how, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of design, a lot of design, you can tell that they're just kind of like sprinkling emotion on at the end as an afterthought, trying to put in little cute touches to, to add to the light or whatever. But that the, the designs that truly connect on an emotional level are the ones that, that had emotion, uh, built in from the get go, you know, emotion was something that was considered at that first square. Like you mentioned, like at the, when you're in the bottom, uh, left-hand corner of your, of your, uh, cycle. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and then uh, I guess one other thing that I was thinking about in, in terms of, of your book, too, is uh, is big data uh, with just the, the surge in the amount of, of data that's out there. Uh, and then, you know, it seems it seems like the, the truly successful designs are the ones that are able to obviously leverage that data appropriately. And, and a big part of that seems to be to be able to sift through it and find connections uh, is is that something that you feel like the the book has has power to help people with as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when you th- think of a concept like big data, uh, the real challenge is sense making. You know, we're entering an era when everything's a sensor, but nothing makes sense. Uh, to use a phrase that my uh, one of my former commanders used to, to say all the time. Love that. That's and, great. <laughs> yeah, it's just I think it was brilliant. And um, you know, somebody pointed out that uh, a big commercial airline might have you know fifty thousand parts. But uh, 20,000 of those are rivets. So, you know, yeah, it has a lot of parts, but, but when 20,000 of your parts are rivets, uh, there's something simple about that because, you know, the rivets are all the same and they tend to be in a line and, and you don't have to, you know, and that's a fairly simple mechanism. I think something similar happens with big data. You know, when we have this, these massive data sets, if we, if we structure them well, if they are, you know, well aligned and, and you know a well-structured data set becomes much easier to um, to process, to to make sense of, 
to use, and it makes it easier to find some of these these interesting connections and interesting correlations. So um, yeah, I, I agree. I think there's um, the the idea that large data is going to fundamentally change the way we do science and the way we do medicine. Um, I think that's very much true, and the way to unlock that is to um, understand how we can structure the data, how we can orient it, how we can process it. Um, and, and again, I think sometimes we're going to need to increase complexity either of the data itself or the, uh, the way we're handling it. And sometimes we need to simplify it with you know, simpler dashboards and, and uses of color and motion and things like that as a way to uh, really represent the, the data that we've collected. Yeah, I mean uh, that's that's true. The, like all the sensors in the world are pretty useless if you can't make sense of all the information they're gathering, and, and there are just so many so many applications that that could be so beneficial to uh, to humanity. <laughs> it's really quite mind boggling. Right, right. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I think when I think of big big data, I tend to for some reason always think of uh, the healthcare industry first. Uh, sure. And maybe that's just because. Every time I go to a new doctor, I cringe at having to fill out that same piece of paper again. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's so archaic. And and but the raw potential, there's so much of it. And if, if there were some yeah, if you can if you can take that huge data set and somehow create a compelling narrative for a physician who's interacting with a patient, like yeah, the possibilities are amazing. So Right, correct. Yeah. But if you if you present that same physician with just a big data dump, just the raw data, um, that ends up being less than less than worthless. Yeah, it's gonna be so, crippling. You know, really, it comes down to how do we and crippling, sure. Um, how do we put a wrapper around this data and make it accessible and, and communicate something of value? That's that's the real challenge, I think. Absolutely. Uh, well, I do. I have one more question for you, uh, and I'm not sure if this will make sense, uh, but it's it's something that we kind of laugh about and struggle with internally in the magazine. Um, sure. And the question is, so when you're working, are, are you thinking the user or users? Because we, uh, we, it seems like there's kind of a divide in, in the submissions that we get, like 50-50 uh, almost, a split, where some articles refer to the user and others uh, users. And I, I think uh, my inclination is to, is to shift toward users, but I'm, I'm not sure I can make a case for why necessarily. Sure. Um, I I think I'd have to go back and check, but my, I believe I typically use the phrase users rather than the user. Um, and so part of that just comes back to my, my experience as a, as a military technology guy. You know, where if we're working on a, a, a GPS system, for example, that GPS system might be used by pilots in a, in a cockpit as well as troops on the ground. The chip might be installed on a munition, on a, on a vehicle. You know, there's just a huge set of, of potential users, each of which has their own needs and restrictions and, and funding lines. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I tend to, when I think of users, I tend to think of them as a fairly diverse set. And the idea of, of the user um, is, is not something I've uh, encountered very often because typically the, the people that I make stuff for um, are not monolithic. They, they tend to um, you know, be, be fairly diverse. Yeah, I think that's maybe the problem with the user. Is is it, it for some, for me? It feels defensive in a sense, like you're standing up for the user when really there's a lot of users out there. Sure, sure, <laughs> and I'm I'm sure there are situations and cases where you have you know one user or one particular, and I've I've been in that situation as well actually. Um, you know where I was designing something for 
basically one guy or one small community. Um, but those are relatively rare in, in my uh, background and in my experience. Um, so I can see why some people would, would take that approach. But yet, yeah, generally, I'm, I'm more of a the users, <laughs> plural, type uh, framework. Great. Well, uh, well, Dan, I, I really want to thank you for, for your time. And I definitely encourage everyone who's listening to check out The Simplicity Cycle because it's, uh, it's a very fun book to read and it's full of great information. So... Hey, thanks so much, Josh. I really enjoyed the uh, the chat. And uh, yeah, the, the book, The Simplicity Cycle, is available at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. or uh, You can get more information about it. Uh, to include, uh, you can download the first chapter for free at my website, which is uh, thedanward.com. So that's T-H-E and then my name, danward.com. Easy to remember. Great. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Dan. So there you have it. Thanks again, Dan. Be sure to go to uh, danward.com. You can read about the simplicity cycle there. Uh, he has another book, uh, Fire, that he mentioned, uh, F-I-R-E. You'll find some info on that, too. So until next time. <laughs>